0: Before we open the Word of God this morning, we have a, a special prayer need. I want to join together with you and pray for Linda Costler. Uh, I, th- I think most of you are aware that she uh, heads down to Seattle uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, she, has, she checks in at 5 o'clock and is having serious heart surgery. and um, So we just want to pray for uh, wisdom uh, for the surgical team and for Linda and Galen and their whole family as they walk through this uh, time of surgery together. There will be many days of recovery and we can stand beside the costlers and encourage them with prayer and meals. You'll hear more of that in the days to come. Will you join me in prayer? Thank you, Father, for the Costlers, and I thank you, God, for, for Linda and the chance uh, she has to to remedy this uh, heart condition. We thank you for Dr. Lair, the, uh, the many, many years of experience that he has along with his surgical team. We pray that you would grant uh, wisdom and strength and patience as they perform this procedure. God, I pray that you would uh, raise Linda up quickly, that even though there will be days of uh, uh, rest and recovery, that, uh, we know that you will be with her every step of the way. We pray that you grant her peace even now as she pray, as she prepares to go in for this procedure, we pray for Galen and, and the children and the grandchildren, the whole family, God, as they gather around this one, they love so much. May, may you be glorified, uh, through this procedure and God, I just pray that uh, Linda would be able to tell of your great grace and, and testify of your promises as she emerges uh, more healthy and, and ready to, to take on the task that you have for her in the coming days. So we commit her to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think most of you know that we have entered uh, a very important season as Americans. It's what we call the beginning of baseball season it's very very important very significant and so because it's baseball season i've decided to throw you a bit of a curveball this morning most of you have you have been with us for the past several months know that we have been walking through very slowly a study in the book of ephesians and two weeks ago we reached the end of chapter 3 and what we have is a a very natural break between chapters 3 and 4 because chapters 1 2 and 3 are Theological lessons for the people of God. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are practical applications that flow out of that very important theology. And so, as we're coming off of our Easter celebration last week and moving towards chapter 4, I thought it might be, uh, uh, I thought I'd mix it up a little bit and preach a sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. So, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. I heard a report several years ago that former President Jimmy Carter made and offered a stinging critique of President George W. Bush and his administration. I have to tell you, I thought it was rather humorous that President Carter would critique President Bush, but nonetheless, he dubbed the Bush administration the worst Administration in United States History. Yeah, I'm glad someone else finds that amusing. But I want to have you do something, just just kind of for fun, to get the ball rolling. I got to thinking, what are the qualifications for a person, a man or a woman, to serve as the President of the United States? I want you to think about that for about three seconds And I want you to lean over to one of your neighbors to the left or to the right. And I want you to share if you know the qualifications and all the young people should know by the most of the young people are off at Birch Bay. So this is very weird. I only have two students. Man, you guys are awesome. Would you lean over to your neighbor and say these are the three qualifications, the three prerequisites for a person to serve as president in the United States? Go ahead and do that. Just a minute. Did I hear someone say, what's the President of the United States? <laughs> Here are the three qualifications. If, if you're not familiar with these, these come from the United States Constitution, Article 2, Section Number 1. Qualification number 1. You must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. Number 2. You must be at least 35 years of age. And then the third criteria is that you must have been a resident for at least 14 years in the United States. Now, move with me from the White House to the sands of the Middle East, if you can Orient your attention that direction. You might be surprised to find, to learn, that the qualifications that God sets forth for a king in, the o- in Old Testament Israel are a totally different proposition. Israel's king, we learn in the pages of the Old Testament, is none other than God himself. But Moses, the author of Deuteronomy, anticipates a day when the nation of Israel will do what? They will cry out for a king. Why would Israel want a human king, you might ask? Hold your finger in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and go over to the book of First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 8, and we, we learn what the answer to that question is. Why would Israel not only ask for a king, what we learn in First Samuel chapter 8 is that Israel demands a king. Look with me at first Samuel chapter eight, verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and he said to them, he, they said to him, "Behold, this is to Samuel. You are old." It's not very nice. and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us, a king, to judge us like all the nations. Drop down to verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Why did Israel have this passionate desire for a king? Why did they demand a king from not only Samuel, but from the living God? And the answer is very clear. They wanted to be like everyone else. Does that sound like your junior high school student? They wanted to be like all the other nations. And so Moses, who writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets forth the requirements for any king who would govern in Israel. I want to have you stand together as we read these verses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. May I remind you, these are the words of the living God. Verse 14 When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Let's pray. Father, it's a pleasure and a privilege to open to the pages of the Old Testament to read uh, your authoritative word together with the people of God. Lord, you've made it very clear what the what the qualifications are for a king here. You've set forth the the standards in in terms of behavior. Lord, as we review some of these, what we would call historical lessons, I pray that out of the overflow of these lessons, we would learn some practical lessons on this day for living the Christian life on this side of the cross. May you encourage your people. May you edify your people. May you educate your people. And may they be uh, ready to, to take on another week, all to the glory of God, because the people of God have spent time together. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is A Kingly Counsel, A Template for Trusting God. In this section of Scripture, we will, as I mentioned in our prayer together, we'll become familiar with this kingly counsel, which in essence will outline both the qualifications and the behavior of a king in Israel. Begin with me by looking at what we refer to as the kingly qualifications or the qualification of a king, verses 14 and 15. Moses says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, we learned that in 1 Samuel, you may indeed set a king over you, here's the key, whom the Lord your God will choose. We refer to this as God's ordained choice. As we discover the kingly qualifications, we realize that it is a God-ordained choice, and this is the choice we have to come to terms with. God must sovereignly choose the king. God must sovereignly choose the king. And additionally, the king must be an Israelite. He can't come from any other nation. He's chosen by God. He's sovereignly chosen by God. He must be an Israelite. Now Israel may be tempted, they may have been tempted to choose a foreign king to strengthen alliances with the surrounding nations, with the surrounding regions. But as you well know, introducing a foreigner in this setting, in this governmental setting, a foreigner is likely to bring pagan influences into the land. A foreign king would likely turn the hearts of Israel from her true king who, as we have already discovered, is Yahweh. Here is a primary lesson we learn in verses 14 and 15. And the lesson is this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is the sole authority. He is the authority of Israel. He is the authority over the nations. He is in authoritative control of your life and mine as well. I want to provide a brief explanation of of the sovereign control of God over all things. One of the gentlemen who has been deeply encouraging to me over the years, he went to be with the Lord back in, I believe, 1990. His name is James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Boyce writes this about the sovereignty of God. He says that God has absolute authority over His creation. In order to be a sovereign, God must also be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. If he were limited in any of these areas, he would not be entirely sovereign. In his landmark book entitled The Sovereignty of God, a book that I have spoken of frequently, it's a book that's in my top ten list of of my all-time favorites, A.W. Pink writes, The sovereignty of God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, and infinite. When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm His right to govern the universe, which He has made for His own glory, just as He pleases. He is sovereign in all His attributes. He is sovereign in the exercise of His power. His power is exercised as He wills, when He wills, where He wills. Stephen Lawson continues the most fundamental truth of theology is the fact that God is, that is, He exists, and He actively reigns over all the works of His hands. God alone, Dr. Lawson writes, possesses the rights of absolute sovereignty, and He continually exercises those divine prerogatives governing all the affairs of providence. Well, there are three well-known pastors and theologians, offering their wise words concerning the explanation of sovereignty. But I want to move forward with you and and have you look at a few scriptures, I'll read these for you, that help us to understand the extent of sovereignty. In in other words, how how far does the sovereign control of God reach? You'll remember in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar He thought he was God. He was going to do things his way. And what did God do? He sent him out to pasture. And you remember that, that that crazy scene in the book of Daniel where he he was left to his own devices and his hair grew long. I often think of Tom Hanks' character in The Castaway who grew that long nasty hair and the beard like came close to touching the ground and that flies in it. And, and with with Nebuchadnezzar, the same is true for him. It's his long beard and hair and his fingernails grow. He never cut his fingernails, and what happens? He He essentially goes insane. And then finally we get to Daniel chapter 4. And we read these words. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have you ever said that to God? What have you done? Why did you bring me here? Why did you do that to me? God, what have you done? First Chronicles 29, verse 11. Scripture reads, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Remember the great Dutch theologian, educator, and statesman, Abraham Kuyper, who said in so many words, when you look around everything, God looks at the beauty of His creation. There is not one thing that He does not utter these words, mine. The beaches are mine. The mountains are mine. The kings are mine. The queens are mine. Those people belong to me. He is sovereign. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. And so Moses spells out this this very clear qualification for a king. In verses 14 and 15, God must sovereignly choose the king. But he continues now in verses 16 to 20 by explaining the behaviors of a potential king. I want you to notice with me four specific behaviors, the first of which is found in verse 16. And here's what Moses says. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. And you might think to yourself, what? You can't have many horses? There's a reason for it. You must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And so here's the first behavior. You want to be a king in Old Testament Israel? You make this commitment. I will not acquire many horses for myself. What's the lesson? The king must, must learn this lesson. That is, he must depend upon God. He must depend upon God, for God is trustworthy. And this is the bottom line, I believe, that the acquisition of, of these horses, it's not like, like we would get a horse. My, my best friend bought a, bought a horse for his daughter a few months ago. That's kind of cute, you would say. What's at play here is the acquisition of many horses would amount to a military buildup. But God wants Israel to trust in him, not the military might that horses would bring. He wants Israel to rely on him to fight their battles for his glory. Here's the bottom line. God is after the heart. It's very interesting. If you looked at the pages of my Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 17, you would see lots of highlights in the passage I'm preaching through this morning, but you would see two words that are underlined, and it stands out vividly. The two words are heart. God is after the heart. And he knows the propensity that the human heart has It has this, this yearning for other things. Have you experienced that? Your, your yearning is for stuff. Your yearning is for things. Your yearning is to have things. Have you ever taken the time to to, to get on the internet? And you go to Amazon, and you just start looking. How many of you, just, just for fun, this would be great. Raise your hand if you have an Amazon list. There's one, there's two. Megan, if you saw my list, you'd be like, oh, my word. How many books do you need? This is crazy. And so God is very aware with the lists that we create in our hearts. He is aware that, that our hearts have this propensity to find their satisfaction in other things. Those things might be good things. Those things might be great things. But if we find our satisfaction in those things, we commit the sin of idolatry. And so God tells the prospective king, resist the urge to return to Egypt and acquire horses for the purpose of of building up your military muscle. Here's the message, trust in me, I will fight for you. That's the first qualification, the first kingly behavior that we see set forth in Deuteronomy 17, or 16 rather. Go on now to verse 17. Moses continues, and he shall not acquire, you have to just chuckle under your breath at this one, right? You shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest, notice, his heart turn away. The second kingly behavior is that he shall not acquire many wives for himself. What is the lesson here? The king is to delight in God alone. The lesson is that God alone will meet the needs of your heart. And so once again, God is after the whole heart. He does not want Israel to to turn away by being captivated with another lover. And of course, idolatry here would be the end result. There's a third behavior that's also found in verse 17. You might have read ahead. It reads as follows, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart is turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. I'm sure there were men who aspired the position of king in Old Testament Israel, and they, they knew this very well, and they thought to themselves, rats. Why? Because everyone likes excessive silver and and gold what's the lesson here desire god desire god over silver and gold he alone is sufficient and so god is guarding here against the sin of self-sufficiency a continual lust for more what we call materialism he is guarding against the the world the flesh and the devil we have this desire for more We want our savings accounts to to increase more and more and more. And God says to Old Testament Israel, this prospective king shall not acquire excessive silver and gold. He is to desire God and God alone. Why? Because God is sufficient. Look at verses 18 to 20 for the final behavior. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel." Here we see the final behavior that is required for this prospective king is he is to live according to the law of God. The lesson is we must devote ourselves to God. His word is truth. Now, I want to show you a summary of these behavioral qualifications for a prospective king of Israel. Let's look at them together. As these behavioral qualities are set forth, let's, let's check them out on the screen here. There's four of them. We, we are called to depend upon God. We are called to delight in God. We are called to desire God. And then finally, this king is called to be devoted to God. Now, with whatever knowledge you have of the Old Testament, with some of you, you may be extreme beginners. With some of you, you may be a, a student of the Old Testament and you've studied it for 40 or 50 or more years Wherever you are in your knowledge base, ask yourself, how did the kings in Old Testament Israel that were to come, how did the kings measure up? How did they do? And I want to have you turn to the book of 1 Kings, and we want to look at one king in particular. If I were to ask who one of the most... Well-known kings was, in Israel, I'm sure most of you would say, Solomon. And I want to basically take a minute here and grade King Solomon. Was he a king who depended on God and delighted in God and desired God? Was he devoted to God? Let's begin by looking at First Kings chapter 10, verse 26. And let's put this all together. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. And as you get to 1 Kings chapter 10, I want to have you just take a a brief detour to 1 Kings chapter 3. Throw a bit of a curveball at you and look together at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Now Solomon Solomon begins well, it appears that he begins well, because the Word of God says, Solomon loved the Lord. Would you not think that's a great way to start? Solomon loved the Lord. You could say that Solomon loving the Lord, he really summarized these four behaviors and the fact that he loved the Lord. But notice there's a comma after that Hebrew word Yahweh. Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David, his father, comma, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. You're like Solomon it was looking so good you love the Lord you were following his precepts yet he He couldn't put away the sin of idolatry. Now go back to First Kings chapter 10 verse 26 and let's grade Solomon together. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen do we need to go further? <laughs> he had 1,400 chariots, does that sound like an accumulation of horses? And 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore and Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot would be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Solomon's not doing very well. Wouldn't you agree? The accumulation of horses. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And they made six, 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went to each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. And on and on and on. So he accumulates many horses. Strike one. He accumulates great wealth. Strike two. Now go to 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Do we need to go further? Among with them the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Notice. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father." And the Bible says in verse 2 that Solomon clung to these in love. That word clung comes from a Hebrew word that means to be deeply attracted to. Moreover, it means to stick together, to closely pursue. And so Solomon's heart was not true to God. His wives, as Moses anticipated and as God anticipated, his wives turned his heart stone cold to God. Instead of being devoted to God, Solomon disobeyed God. And so what can we learn about Solomon? Solomon does everything that God tells him not to do. He violates the command of God. And so Moses lays the kingly counsel on the table for us all to see. And I have to ask this question, why the specific qualifications and behaviors? What is the reason? Answer, because as the king goes so goes the nation. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Now, there is a strong likelihood that not one person in this sanctuary will ever become a king. Would you agree with that? I'm pretty sure none of us will become a king. But is it possible that the principles that are set forth for us in Deuteronomy are instructive and provide guidelines for the Christ follower on this side of the cross. I want to suggest a template, what I call a template for trusting, which includes three vital principles. The first principle in this template for trusting is this, we are called to commit to the kingly rule of Christ in our lives. We are to commit ourselves to the kingly rule of Christ in our lives. I believe, and I've believed this for a long time now, that one of the reasons that Americans in particular are so resistant to the sovereign control of God is that the spirit of autonomy was at the heart of our nation's birth. One of the slogans you will remember of the American War of Independence was, we serve no sovereign here. Now, none of us were alive when that slogan became popularized, but there's something within the American psyche that has been passed on through the generations that says, we don't like King George. That's why he was hung in effigy in those days, during the days of the American Revolution, we serve no sovereign here, and I think that that mentality has bled into the the collective consciousness of many Americans. James Boyce says the basic reason why women and men do not like the doctrine of god 's sovereignty is they do not want a sovereign God; they wish to be autonomous, they wish to be laws unto themselves, so they either Deny God's existence entirely. Deny this attribute of his existence, or else simply ignore him for all practical purposes. Close quote. I believe there must come a day when God's sovereignty is no longer a problem for you. And in a a congregation of this size, I can almost immediately predict that there will be several of you who will struggle mightily with the sovereignty of God. And I need to encourage you by telling you this, you are in good company. Many of you know that one of the most influential dead men in my life is Jonathan Edwards. I love Jonathan Edwards. He has helped me understand the Bible He has helped me understand the gospel. He has helped me understand the Trinity. He has helped me understand the sovereignty of God more than anyone else outside of Scripture that I can think of. Yet, in his teens, Jonathan Edwards was like some of you, and like many Americans, he hated the doctrine of God's sovereignty. He hated it. The shift in your thinking must be like the the earth-shattering change that took place in the young mind of Jonathan Edwards. He went from hating the sovereignty of God to uttering these words later in his life. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. That is to say, he changed his mind. And he says this, The doctrine has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. And then he says, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. You want to put something on your refrigerator? You want to put a great quote on your bathroom mirror? You want to put a note card in your wallet? You want to put a note in your Evernote account? You get extra credit if you do that. This would be the great one. This would be the quote, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. In his sermon on Acts chapter 1, John Calvin says, So when Jesus Christ causes his gospel to be preached in a country, it is as if he said, I want to rule over you and be your king. And so there must come a day when you you hand over the reins of your life, to Christ's kingly rule once and for all. Calvin continues, he says, We belong to God. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are gods. Let his we belong to God's, I should say. Let his wisdom. And and his will, therefore, rule all our actions. We belong to God. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. And so we make this commitment. As the people of God, we commit ourselves to the kingly rule of Jesus Christ in our lives. There's a second component to this template of trusting That is that we commit ourselves to daily intimacy with Christ. You see, I've learned in my Christian life, and I think you have as well, that we are always one step away from committing idolatry. We are always one step away from from going back to Egypt. Remember the old Keith Green song? I'll date some of you. So you want to go back to Egypt? Don't do it. Where you're warm and secure? Don't do it. Finding satisfaction in other things is not the way to go. God is asking you and he's asking me to depend upon him. He's calling you and I to delight in him, to desire him above all. And like Old Testament Israel, he does not want us to go back to Egypt. There's a little book that was published by a a Scottish writer by the name of Henry Scougal, It's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. It's a book that was almost impossible to, to find in bookstores, even on the internet, until recently. You can now pick up a copy for 99 cents, and I would commend it to all of you. The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scougal. It is a book that was instrumental in the salvation of George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers in all of human history. He read this book by Henry Skugel, and one of the sentences read like this, The soul of a man is of a vigorous and active nature, and hath in it a raging and inexhaustible thirst, a kind of fire always catching at some object or another. And... Don't misread Skuggles' words. He, he means one of two things. The soul is like a raging fire. With an inextinguishable thirst, you can either take that fire and run after the things of the world. That would be idolatrous. Or you can have an inexhaustible thirst. And I think of young people in particular. My heart and my prayer and my desire is that the young people in this valley, they would take their inexhaustible thirst and they would find their joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Can you imagine what would happen? And the same is applied to to each person this morning. To to find your satisfaction in Jesus. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I was golfing with Nathan, my son, on Friday. And he asked me this incredible question. And I mean, it was on the fifth hole. And when he asked me the question, I said, well, here's my answer in part. But we're going to need a long time to continue to unpack this. And here is his question. Dad, how do you glorify God on the golf course? Don't you love it when your teenager asks questions like that? You don't want the questions about Miley Cyrus or pop culture and all this nonsense, right? Your son says, Dad, how do I glorify God on the golf course? And I said, this is the biggest lesson I've learned from the life of John Piper. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so I said, the question is not really about golf, Nathan. The question is about all of life. If you can figure out the answer to the question, how do I glorify God in life? Then you apply it to golf. Then you apply it to the academy. Then you apply it to your future career. Then you apply it to your future wife. Then you apply it to how you raise your children. You apply it to how you minister in the body of Christ as you learn that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, may each of us foster daily intimacy with Jesus by spending daily time in His prayer, in His word rather, in prayer, communing with the saints as we're doing now, and repenting of our sin, confessing our sin, running to the cross of Christ each and every day. This morning, which direction is your heart leaning? Is it leaning towards Egypt where you find your satisfaction in lesser things? Or is your heart satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ? If you are satisfied with God, the allure of Egypt will look like rubbish to you. You won't be interested in it anymore. So we commit ourselves to daily intim- <laughs> excuse me, intimacy with Christ. Finally... We commit ourselves to living according to God's word. And Moses spells this out. We won't read it again. He spells it out in Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20. And the the flow of logic goes something like this. We learn to fear God by keeping the words in his law. What does that mean? That means we're obedient. We're obedient. To obey, Samuel says, is better than sacrifice. But this is for a purpose, Moses says, so that your heart will not be lifted up. We obey, and as a result, our hearts are not lifted up. In other words, we are men and women and boys and girls of humility. You remember the words in Isaiah chapter 66? This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite. And trembles at my word. Moses also says this will prevent you from turning aside from the law. Which tells me this is a portrait of integrity. This is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is a a person of integrity. And it results in living long in his kingdom. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is a, a template for trusting it was a few years ago, I have a friend who formerly was a church planter in the Czech Republic, now he has planted a church down in the state of Colorado, and I learned, as my friend shared, that his mother had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and if you've ever known anyone who, is, who has died of Lou Gehrig's disease, it is, it is a painful, it is a horrible death, and um, My dear friend's mom died of ALS. My friend's wife recently wrote about some of what they experienced together as a family as a result of the death of their mom and mother-in-law and grandma. And I think many of you will relate very well to this story. Here's what Jen writes, Mark's wife. and anxiety accompanied my grief. My mother-in-law's life ended not just by ALS, but actually by F-A-L-S, familial ALS. Her father, you see, was taken by it nine years prior. When she was diagnosed, we had the crushing realization that my husband, my friend, has a 50% chance of having F-A-L-S. And get this, if he does then all of his children also have a 50% chance of contracting FALS. Jen continues, Currently, there is no treatment, cure, or prevention for ALS. Victims are captive to their bodies, which deteriorate while their minds stay healthy. After three to five years, they die from being unable to breathe or swallow. I don't just weep for the loss of my sweet mother-in-law or the sadness that my husband bore without me. I wept over the what-ifs, and I begged the Lord to not let them be so. Five years later now, the anxiety that arrived the day of her death still threatens to take hold. I can easily spiral into a frenzy of what-ifs. Grasping for reassurance, I read the scientific research and the stories of other FALS-affected families. I've put my kids and husband through diets and regimens in hoping, hopes of staving off what can feel inevitable. I've wrung my hands and rechecked statistics. We've even, even briefly considered genetic testing. Yet deep down, I know what Christians need to do when they are afraid." we need to rest in the Lord himself. More than prevention, more than science, more than our best efforts, in the face of what could be, we need a peace that surpasses understanding. And we need a renewing of the mind. Both are ours by God's Spirit if we seek him and ask. And she continues her well-thought-out piece that she wrote. She says, one day soon and then forever, ALS will be no more. Whatever you may fear, school shootings, car accidents, separation from loved ones, the loss of a child, extended suffering at the end of life, it will not remain. Perfect love will cast it all out. You and I will be with our Lord, and scary diagnoses and suffering will be no more. This is a family, my dear friends, who have chosen to accept the kingly council my question is on this day in april 2018 will you too accept the kingly council the template for trusting is to commit yourself to three things this morning that is to commit yourself to the the kingly rule of christ to daily intimacy with christ and to commit yourself to living according to god's word that is the truth point And as you well know, most of the Old Testament kings chose to disregard God. They they chose to disregard the imperatives of the king of the universe that was set before them. And those who disregarded that kingly counsel, they ended up in turmoil and they ruined their lives. Now, while you are not a king and I am not a king, you and I serve the king of kings. And anyone who serves the king is called to obey him. To submit to him. And so today he asked for your loyalty. He asked for your love. He asked for your your loyal submission. He asked for your obedience. He asked for your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's the bottom line this morning. The king died on a cross that you might know the living God of the universe. Will you surrender to this king on this day? Will you accept this kingly counsel and entrust your life to Him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for my friends who have chosen to to walk the narrow path, that in spite of uh, the prospect of a, sc- a scary diagnosis, in the face even of, of evil things, they have chosen to to pay very close attention to the word of God and to entrust themselves to to your sovereign plan. God, I pray the same would hold true for each of us in this room today. God, for the many who are followers of Jesus, that they would find their satisfaction in him, that they would delight in him, that they would treasure him in their hearts and cast off things that are competing for uh, walking with Jesus in a a full-orbed way. And for the many who are, are not yet Christians, God, I pray that today would be the day that, that someone would accept the terms of the king, that they would trust in his kingly counsel. And the greatest way to do that is to bend the knee and to submit to your will, to cast all our anxiety on you, to cast all, all our, our, our hopes and dreams on you, but most of all, to repent of our sin, to turn from our sin and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and find our satisfaction in him. God, would you do a mighty work of grace in someone's heart today? And I pray that you would encourage the people of God, that we would walk away filled with hope and filled with encouragement and filled with with, uh, a beautiful hope in the gospel of your Son. So God, prepare us for the week before us, and no matter what uh, we come face-to-face with, may we accept this kingly counsel. May you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. be prepared to take the Lord's Supper together it